0: Welcome everybody to our 23rd, can you imagine it, 23rd edition of Conversations with Our Priest. Tonight we have the Venerable Carol Maddox, Archdeacon and Executive Director of the Georgia Interfaith Public Policy Center, and the Reverend Jeffrey Jeff T. Smith, Chief Operating Officer of the Office of the Presiding Bishop of the Episcopal Church. Uh, The discussion topic today is the role of deacons as advocates and advocacy leaders in the church. So this should really get us thinking. Jeff is a member of the presiding bishop staff and has served as the chief operating officer of the Episcopal Church since January of 2017. He oversees a broad portfolio of responsibilities, including the day-to-day operations and management of communications, human resources, information technology, buildings, facilities, and real estate acquisition as well as serving as a senior member of the presiding bishop's leadership team.
1: Nora, you could also include communications in that
0: oh, <laughs> portfolio. In <communication. laughs> so, he's communicating tonight. Jeff was <laughs> ordained a deacon in 1996 in the Diocese of Chicago and has served in Diocese of Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New York, and then moving to Connecticut and serving at St. John's Church in Essex. He has a passion for social justice and advocacy and growing the diaconate. Carol is founder and executive director of the Interfaith Public Policy Center. She has experience in advocacy, leadership, and nonprofit management. She was ordained as a deacon in the Episcopal Church in 2006 and appointed Archdeacon of the Diocese of Atlanta, which encompasses North and Middle Georgia. Carol has served on multiple boards in the community, including local service nonprofits, statewide healthcare organizations, and an international religious organization. She has 24 years of experience in nonprofit management. She has has an undergraduate degree in communications from Georgia State University, and a master's degree in healthcare policy and administration from Mercer University. Carol was born in Waycross, Georgia. She's a ninth-generation Georgian with a deep love of Georgia and Georgians, and has a passion for pursuing God's mission in the world. I want to thank you all for being here. Jeff and Carol, Carol and Jeff, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for inviting us. Oh, our pleasure, totally. I understand, Jeff, that you will be doing our um, opening prayer for us. And if you would like to do that, we would greatly appreciate it.
1: Be happy to. This is a prayer that actually comes from the Iona community uh, and is based on uh, Ephesians chapter 4. So let us pray. There is no pain in our hearts or in our planet that you do not know, for you have touched the lowest places on earth. Teach us to grieve with you, O Christ, the loss of all the beauty that is dying. There is no place in the heavens that cannot be touched by your resurrection presence, for you fill all things. Give us strength in your victory over death to grow into your way of love, which does not despair, but keeps sowing seeds of hope and making signs of wholeness. Under Christ's control, all the different parts of the body fit together, and the whole body is head together, held together by every joint with which it is provided. Teach us to know our interconnectedness with all things. Teach us to grow with each other and all living creatures through love. Amen.
0: Amen. Well, I will leave it to y'all. We're going to have about 45 minutes of conversation. If anyone has any questions, you are free to wait until the end and our last 15 minutes of questions and answers, or if you would like to type your question in the chat box, that would be great also. Thank you.
2: Okay, well, I'll go ahead and get started, if that's all right, Jeff, and then I'll sure. we'll, we'll turn it over to you. Um, I was, I'm, as you now know, Carol Maddox, and I um, I'm Archdeacon for Discernment in the Diocese of Atlanta, and what that means is if you're interested in in the diaconate, if you have a question about the diaconate, you want to learn more about the diaconate, or maybe you're even exploring a call to the diaconate, um, I'm your first call after you talk to your priest. So um, unless you are a priest, in which case I'm your first call. (laughs) So... I, I spend um, a large part of my time with the church, you know, talking to people about the diaconate. And one of the ways, and the um, the board that was mentioned that I'm on is the um, Association for Episcopal Deacons, where I'm vice president, president-elect. So I will be, um, pray for me, helping to lead that. That organization uh, for deacons in the Episcopal Church, which, of course, as you know, also encompasses um, dioceses in the Caribbean and the and Central America, as well as we partner with the um, Canadian Church. So, I I have a passion for the diaconate, is all I can say. <laughs> and I think part of that is because of my own discernment. Um, process, um, which started, oh my goodness, a long, long time ago when I was, um, I was at annual council and at that time we had the deacons all sit at one table. Now, thankfully, they wouldn't all fit at one table, but, um, and it was way in the back and we were, I was representing a brand new parish, so we were way in the back (laughs) And so I was sitting next to it, and, you know, maybe I shouldn't confess this, but at times during annual council, I can sometimes be a little bored. And I turned to the table next to me and saw someone sitting there with a collar on and said, well, what is a deacon? And she turned to me with this big beam, and I'm not going to embarrass her by saying who it was, but um, she a big beaming smile and she said well we're kind of the bridge between the church and the world and that just intrigued me so I um I started looking more into it talked to my priest and um start and unfortunately and at that time that was the council where um, Bishop Allen was announcing his retirement and so they, they put a lot of things on hold, so I had plenty of time for personal discernment before I was able to um, be accepted into the more formal discernment of the diocese at the time for the diaconate. Um, but I remember about halfway through my formal discernment period, I was reading a book about deacons, and it was like, oh my goodness, these are, these are my people. It's like I have finally found my people, and um, I think part of it is because I am called to a faith that embodies servanthood, but also embodies the prophetic voice. And of course, that, that wasn't magical, it didn't, you know, I had to learn, I had to go through formation. I've had a few years of experience here and um, and my and, and the service piece, which is a part of the diaconate that I think a lot of people think about, um, this deacon as servant, um, diaconeo and stuff, it's we often see icons of Saint Stephen washing people's feet, and that is a, a common um just symbol of the diaconate and it's very important but we deacons are in service um, because Jesus was in service and we are also leaders of the laity to help you develop your lives of service that we're all called to through our baptismal covenant in fact as as I learn more and more about the diaconate one thing I learned was that uh, much of the modern diaconate is really tied to um, the rewrite of the prayer book in 1979. That ordination liturgy that was written for the diaconate in there really outlines um, who we are as deacons and, and what the church is calling us to be as deacons. Um, at that, in that same prayer book was also the rewrite of the baptismal covenant. And I think that those two are really um, closely intertwined. And I'll tell you why. Part of what the deacon does as a leader in the church is we help the laity move and live into their baptismal covenant not the whole thing but i want to talk about some specific parts the part the last two questions that is asked of all of us when we take or renew our baptismal covenant are will you seek and serve christ in all persons loving your neighbor as yourself and that to me is a is a large is the underpinning of the the servanthood side. We're looking for Christ in each other. We're looking to serve our neighbor as Christ served, to love each other as, as Christ loved us. And then the second question that really to me points to the diaconate is, will you strive for justice and peace among all people and respect the dignity of every human being? And that to me is a lot of the advocacy piece because we can lead people into service. I worked for years. um, I helped found um, Church of the Common Ground. And so I worked for years with the the homeless. Um, I also worked for years in hospice. I ran a um, a free and then charitable clinic um, in rural Georgia for 14 years serving the poor and the uninsured so the that service piece is integral to the whole to everything we do but if you do the service piece and you're not looking at okay I'm helping the homeless but I'm why are they homeless you know it's one thing to feed a person. It's another thing to ask why they're hungry. It's one thing to bring them healthcare. It's another thing to ask why in one of the richest countries and the richest states and the richest cities in the world, people are going without healthcare, you know? So it, it, they're intertwined. You can't do the service and truly be looking for, striving for justice and peace without the advocacy piece as well. So one of the things that um, a previous leader of the, it was called NAD back then, rather than the Association for Episcopal Deacons, but um, Suzanne Watson Epting wrote in a um, article in the Anglican Theological Review that diaconal leadership asks, does three things, essentially. We ask hard questions, We speak from a position of strength and we energize with hope. And what those three things really are is the role of the prophet, the role of the prophet in the church. A prophet both does criticisms, but also energizes as as Walter Bergerman says. So uh, we critique, we bring, the, um, concerns of the world to the church by asking those hard questions. Why are people hungry? And then we speak from a a place of strength. And I can tell you that to me, that place of strength is because the deacons do as our Bishop describes it, get their fingernails dirty. So I wouldn't have a whole lot of, um, of street cred, (laughs) so to speak, if I hadn't actually been on the street. You know, if I didn't actually have worked with the uninsured for as long as I have and know the horrible stories of people who go without simple healthcare and what it does to their lives, to their family lives, to their children's lives, then I wouldn't have credibility. If I hadn't sat with the dying, And I couldn't tell people just how isolating it can be to be dying. So, you know, it takes authenticity and that's that speaking from a position of strength, but also we are required to energize with hope. And we energize with hope in a couple of ways. We point to the fact that there's a new day. That there are new ways to do things. We don't have to accept that there are hungry. We don't have to accept that people go without health care. We don't have to accept climate change. We don't have to accept these things, these hard questions that we bring to the church. We can advocate for change. And that takes all of us. And that's where the deacon can be a leader in the church. So that is part of the reason why in 2018, I started looking more to, uh, from direct service and more into advocacy. And in 2019 founded the Georgia Interfaith Public Policy Center. And the reason it's an interfaith thing is because frankly, the Episcopal church is, we feel like we're big and mighty and strong and we are. But at least in Georgia, we're pretty small. So (laughs) it takes all of us. It takes... um, And frankly, it's also, in my opinion, part of the respect and dignity of every human being, too. You know, it takes humility to realize you can't do it by yourself and that we have to come together. So when I found out that the state of Virginia had actually expanded Medicaid by using a coalition that included an organization called the Virginia Interfaith Center for Public Policy. I said, well, I've got to find the Georgia one. And there wasn't one. So that's why I went to Bishop Wright and thank goodness he thought, as he said, it it was an experiment worth running. He gave me some support around that. And um, along with some of his friends that included um, Rabbi Berg from the temple and Sumaya Khalifa from the Islamic Speakers Bureau and um, a man that I now refer to as Senator. So <laughs> Raphael Warnock from Ebenezer was part of our founding group. So um, it's, it's been an adventure to do this, but it's, it has grown out of as a deacon my knowledge and that we have to advocate, we have to speak out for those who um, who are powerless. And part of the reason we do that again is not because we're a social service agency, um, though many deacons run social service agencies. It's because we love Jesus And in our ordination vows, we are told to model our life after Jesus. If you look at Jesus's ministry, you see that prophetic work all the way through it. He asks hard questions. He speaks from a position of strength. And he energizes with hope. And that goes back to even before he's born, when you read the Magnificat, you can see that that is, that is the promise of Christ. So, you know, for me, that's why the deacon and the diaconate is perfect for leading the church in advocacy. Um, one of the things that I do is I help people understand that one it's political, but it ain't partisan. It, um, it is a natural way of expressing our faith, because you see, we have private faith, you know, that is expressed privately, like your daily prayers at home. Um, and then we have faith that is expressed in our parishes when we go to church together. And then we have the way we live out our faith in the public arena by voting, by supporting nonprofits, by speaking with people. And then we have our faith that's done both corporately, but also publicly. And that's our advocacy through and with our church. So that makes it balanced. If you have just private worship, it's not balanced. If you have just public worship, it's not balanced. If you have just, um, what's the what am I trying to say? Corporate, that's not balanced. And if you have just personal, it's not balanced. So social justice is a part of a balanced approach to faith. In, my experience. Um, And so one of the things that we do at the center is we can help train people to be advocates. I go to parishes all over the diocese and I'm constantly told, you know, Carol, I want to get involved, but I don't know how. And I will, I will teach you how to go down to the gold dome and Well, maybe not right now, they're discouraging people from that, (laughs) but you can advocate right from your living room, you know, so, um, and we're learning more and more how to do that. The center was a big part of passing the hate crimes bill last legislative session and in passing um, some second chances so that people can get their criminal records expunged. So it really makes a difference. And it's really, in my opinion, the prophetic work of the church. But I have really, I've gone on and on, and I want to hear Jeff's story about how he came to the diaconate and his work in advocacy, because Jeff is not in our diocese and has a much, has a different point of view, and I really want to hear about that. So, Jeff, will you tell us? Thanks, a little Carol. About-
1: yeah, and, and and thanks for allowing a Connecticut Yankee to come in, in into your state for <laughs> at least virtually. Um, although I have lived all over the country. Uh, this is actually the I think the 26th place that I've called home so. Um, I'm happy to say I've been in all 50 states uh, every Canadian province except for Newfoundland and they're on my list. Um, and uh, had a chance to to travel a lot throughout the world as well. Um, as, as was being said, I, I currently am the chief operating officer for the Episcopal Church, but most of my working career was in a very different approach from what Carol had. I was uh, I was an MBA in finance and uh, worked in corporate America for for most of my career. Um, I was the risk manager for Kraft, the food company, uh, for Iron Mountain, the record storage company. Um, And so, um, and actually it was through corporate America that I found the diaconate uh, because I was in a parish in suburban Chicago and uh, going to church with my wife. who was a good Southern Baptist. uh, And so um, we were gonna go to church every week. uh, And uh, we tried the Southern Baptist Church for a while. And I said, and she said, okay, we'll try the Episcopal Church since that's your upbringing. And uh, sure enough, since she had gone to Duke and uh, sung with the chapel choir, the the liturgy appealed to her and the rest was history. but I was—I uh, had just finished my MBA, and the parish that I was going to um, all of a sudden needed a treasurer. And I thought, well, I could do that. Um, so I said, sure, I'll, I'll give it a try. Uh, it was kind of an interesting experience. The first day on the job as treasurer. I was handed a subpoena from the IRS because apparently my predecessor wasn't quite sure what withholding meant. Um, And so got that straightened out, but it was it was a parish that uh, was very, very challenged. Uh, And so every month I'd have to make the decision, gee, do I write the check to the rector for uh, for his pay or do I pay the electric bill? And um, it got really wearying. Uh, And so when the bishop came out for a visit one time uh, to celebrate the installation of a $250,000 pipe organ in the building, and I'm sitting there in the pew watching water run down the inside wall because we hadn't fixed the roof yet, and the epistle for the day talked about the many gifts that was, were given to the spirit uh, and to the body of Christ. I just sat there and prayed and said, okay, Lord, you got me. If you want me to be the treasurer here, that's what I'll do. But if you could find something we could both enjoy, that'd be great. And sure enough, a couple of months later, uh, and this was, you know, this was in the 1980s. Uh, and the diaconate was just being revived and restored at that point, Uh, somebody came out from the diocese and said, well, we're thinking about restoring the diaconate here in in the Chicago area. And that was like a Damascus Road experience for me. The the lights went on, and I was like, that's it, you know. uh, Kind of like Charlie Brown sometimes. Um, But... um, I went to our, our curate and said, I'm really excited about this. And he said, well, Jeff, let me, let me talk to you for a minute. You got two kids in diapers right now. Um, this might not be the right time. So why don't you just think about it for a while? And I tucked that idea of ordination away for about 10 years. I don't know why I thought it would be easier when the kids were going into junior high school, but I said I got to I got to scratch this this itch. Uh, I, I've just got to explore it, and so I went to my parish priest and told him I think I'm being called to being a deacon. And after he got done laughing, he said, "Okay, we'll form a committee, and you know what." Um, short of my family it has been the best thing that i've ever done with my life Um, and and my focus on the dia. when i when i went to the commission on ministry and they said well what what is your diaconal ministry because at at that time um you had to be either involved with a soup kitchen involved with a homeless shelter or Something along those lines, or you just weren't going to be even considered. And I sat there and I thought, well, I've I've done some of that in, in volunteering, but I think of myself more as a fireman, and I'm just going to run towards whatever's burning. Um, and so I've been involved uh, as a deacon in AIDS ministry to families of people who were infected with HIV AIDS uh, and this was during the real early 1990s uh, when that was a death sentence Uh, and that ministry continued um, really up until the time when they developed the triple cocktail uh, and all of a sudden people started viewing AIDS more as a chronic condition than as a and as a fatal disease. Uh, it still is in many places but um, the public attitude has changed um, and that taught me that you know what various ministries kind of have a life cycle to them uh, and they're there when they need to be there and when they're no longer needed. Uh, it's okay to kind of say we're going to stop for now until we're needed again um, And I went on from doing that to uh, getting involved when I was a deacon in New Hampshire with helping to address the education gap uh, in the state because state funding in, in New Hampshire was entire, for the school systems was entirely based on local property taxes, which meant that the schools for kids in wealthy communities were tremendous, and those that were in impoverished parts of the state, and most of the state, frankly, is an impoverished part of the state, uh, since paper mills have closed and everything else, um, there are schools that are bumping along, trying to remain certified to remain open. Uh, and now I'm, I'm involved in helping a very affluent community here in Connecticut Uh, realized that they need to have a conversation on the topic of race and racism, Uh, not just from the standpoint of of police brutality, although that is certainly one of the issues that we address, not from a historical perspective where we say, oh, that that was a southern problem because, trust me, New Englanders were very much involved in the slave trade, not only by providing the shipping, but there were slaves throughout all of the New England states as well. Um, And just learning to, helping the congregation to learn what their own history is, what their own truth is, what their own advantages and privileges are by virtue of their being white predominantly. and what, what the gospel is calling us towards. Um, and it's, it's challenging. It's a, it's a very challenging conversation, but it's, it's one we're having. And as a deacon, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, as it's, this is a conversation that the priests, there have been three priests in, the, in that church who have all said, yep, we got to have this conversation sooner or later. Um, and the rector at the time, well, we've got other priorities. We're we're just not gonna we're not gonna address that right now because it is a very like our nation, a very divided congregation on the topic. Um, and the the associate that was there, yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna touch that third rail. The interim who came in, we're gonna get to that. We're gonna get to that. We're going to get to that, and never did. And um, and it wasn't until George Floyd was murdered that I said, you know what, the time is now. Uh, as a deacon, you're not paying me a salary, so you can't dock my pay. Let's let's start talking about this and let's start doing something. Uh, and that that to me is one of the one of the challenges of being a deacon but also one of its greatest opportunities is the fact that uh, as carol was saying we can be that prophetic voice without having to worry about our paycheck uh, really just worrying about what is the gospel compelling us towards doing Um, you know i look at the diaconate as a part of ordained ministry, and all ordained ministry, whether it be bishop, priest, or deacon, is about leadership. It's not about going out and doing the work on behalf of the congregation. Uh, It's about equipping and engaging and inspiring everyone in the church to be part of God's mission. Um, And all ordained ministry, when you boil it right down to its essence, is really three things. It's a ministry of the word, the sacrament and servanthood. And we each do it. Bishops do it, priests do it, deacons do it. It's just a matter of, we do it in slightly different ways. Um, Our orders emphasize different aspects of Jesus's ministry in the world. Um, And so as ministers of the word, Deacons share in helping to proclaim the gospel and in preaching and teaching, uh, just as bishops and priests do. As sacramental ministers, uh, bishops and priests lead us in the Eucharist and weddings and the other sacraments and services of the church. And deacons assist in those sacraments. Uh, So it's really in the ministry of servanthood that deacons come into their own. Um, I, as a deacon, get very, very passionate about the dismissal at the end of the service. Uh, I get very loud. I get, and I'm about 6'3", so I get, I've got a pretty good wingspan when I raise my arms. Um, but it's, it's, I make the point that, you know what, you've come here, you've been fed, you've been comforted, and now it is time to take it out into the world Uh, and that's that's what the deacon to me is really about being is the minister of the door the one to to push you out the door and to to live those experiences that we get in the eucharist throughout the rest of the week um we do get called to be prophets i mean the the fact that the fact that we're not paid means <laughs> we get to be very prophetic at times um, and that's a great thing as as presiding bishop catherine jefford shorey called us uh, we get to be holy nags to the church um, and that means we get to be the ones who remind the church of what its mission was i mean there's, a, there's an interesting paper that was written by a bishop um, who talked about the fact that the diaconate really was the church's response to its own failure to live into its own ideals. That if you go back and you look at Acts, you find that the church in ancient times was almost like a commune. I mean, we all shared in the same same purse whatever was needed was provided by the community Uh, it was it was really a commune of sorts Um, and and that started falling apart and so Stephen and and the others were chosen uh, to be sort of the proto-deacons to ensure that the distribution to the widows and the poor actually took place and to the gentiles that it would actually take place, um, and that's that's been part of the deacon's ministry and mission in the church ever since. Um, but as 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 I like to remind people, um, you know, Stephen wasn't stoned for beating little old ladies. Stephen was stoned for having the temerity to speak the gospel to power, Um, and where Carol has had a wonderful experience in the not-for-profit world, most of my experience was actually in the for-profit world, and I found it incredibly enriching to experience being a deacon in corporate America. and actually had a wonderful opportunity one time uh, when I was at attending a dinner uh, with the CEO and the, and, the, and the chief financial officer of the company and members of the board of directors. And the, the CEO who happened to have come to the Old North Church in Boston where I was serving as deacon at the time, saw me there and in the middle of the conversation about basis points and all the other kinds of financial things that the corporation was doing turned to me and said jeff what is being a deacon have to do with what you do during the day here and it was just such a wonderful opportunity to share with him how all of us regardless of where we are working where we're making our living or how we're making our living or how we're supporting our family uh, in any way, can live into diakonos, into, into serving Christ and being a servant to others in need. Um, so that's kind of my story. I don't think I'll stick with it. Happy to answer any questions. I'd rather be answering questions than uh, just rambling on.
2: Well, Jeff, I, I want to say something real quick, though, because um, your story about Catherine Jeffords-Scorey reminded me of something I had just read about her that this was before she was presiding bishop. She was saying that um, when, we're, when the church is considering where to start new churches, We should consult with the deacons and the um, people she was speaking to weren't sure why that should be. And she said simply that deacons know where the church is needed. And then your story about, um, about work is that goes right back to our examination, doesn't it? Where you are to make Christ and his redemptive love known by your word and example to those among whom you live and work and worship
0: yep. so
2: yeah we're deacons yeah i
1: just i just really don't want people to think that you have to have had a pedigree in in not-for-profit service uh in order to be a deacon uh, one of the amazing things about the diaconate is everybody's got their own story uh and approaching it differently uh, so it's one of the great strengths and one of the great challenges of being a deacon because. I still get on occasion, people coming up to me and saying, that's a great sermon. When are you going to be ordained? <laughs> right. How come your, how come your stole is, is on wrong?
2: <laughs>
1: there aren't many of us, but we're, we're mighty. We punch above our weight. So
2: <laughs> we do. do
0: we have any questions? i have a question yeah um in this time many of us are not even seeing our families let alone people we don't know how can we serve with those parameters
1: you do a lot of zoom you do what needs to be done i mean one of the One of the outcomes of this conversation of race that I'm I'm leading this congregation towards is to really mobilize them. Connecticut has one of the most bizarre laws left in America today. It's one of two states where if you are receiving state aid, welfare, in this state, it is considered a loan. And so if you come into any money whatsoever, the state is gonna to come to you with their hand open and say, pay us back. It just tr- entraps people into cycles of poverty that last for generations. And so you can we can do advocacy without having to, to meet face to face. We can stand on the street curb with a sign socially distanced from, from others and advocate for criminal justice reform. Uh, there's all sorts of ways that we can still be involved. It's more challenging and it's far easier when you can talk to people during a, a forum after church or in a in a coffee hour uh, than it is on Zoom, but uh If there's a will, there's a way.
2: Absolutely. I I, can share some of the things that I know of others doing too. So advocacy, obviously, educating yourself on what the issues are and and working usually in coalition with um, others who are are working like the Georgia Justice Project um, or Georgia Interfaith Power and Light on environmental issues. We've got a great Office of Government Relations for the Episcopal Church, and um, you can sign up for the Episcopal Public Policy Network and learn both learn and and, um, get action items whenever there's something that they need you to talk to your federal representatives and senators about. And they have a great um, on their website. They have the Faith and Citizenship Guide that actually um, can teach you how to do advocacy. As far as direct service, there's the need hadn't gone away.
0: We're,
2: yes, we're going to have to just be a little bit different about how we do it. We can't do the food drives anymore. But you know what? Your local nonprofit. or or a food pantry can sure as heck use um, donations of money and grocery um, cards. Um, I know that at some of the parishes this year, instead of bringing in toys at the Christmas time, they just set it up electronically so that you could order it on Amazon or Target or wherever and it got shipped directly to the um, to the nonprofit. And, and while I know that's not as much fun as, as some of the, you know, the tactical things or when you can actually go places and, and, and work together, at the same time, we're not doing it for fun, right? We're doing it because people are in need and, and that need can still be addressed. So, that, that the other thing that we're doing at St. David's, um, where I help some, is we're having something we call common purpose, and every other month, we have a speaker and discussions on topics, on issues that are um, somewhat controversial, and, but we want to bring people together so that in this, these divisive times, we can come together and have good civic discourse about these issues and you know what we used to do that in person and we used to have a potluck supper and everything we don't have supper anymore but zoom i'm finding that it's almost more fun on zoom than it was you know getting back in my car after a long day (laughs) and driving over (laughs) right We and I will question. I
1: will make a plug too that uh, the Episcopal Church has just uh, initiated an, another campaign or another uh, movement called out of many one which is really designed to help anyone on an individual on a parish or a diocesan level have the difficult conversations with people who hold very different perspectives on that, on particular issues and to find the common ground.
0: I think we have a question in the chat box. Carol, this might be more your, (laughs) this is from Pauline.
1: It could be a question for the Diocese of Connecticut too, so.
0: Oh, okay, it could be. Would you, have you guys seen the question?
1: Carol, it's all yours.
2: I did. Um, Well, I can tell you why we do that in the Diocese of Atlanta. And um, there's there's a couple of reasons. One is it it does it kind of protects the deacon, and I, I can tell you that as someone who was raised up or or sponsored for the diaconate in a, in a parish in a, in the diocese, and I actually um, oddly was sent back to that parish afterwards, and it worked fairly well, but it muted often doesn't because so you know i had been verger, sunday school teacher whatever at this parish now all of a sudden i was in a different role and it's hard sometimes for a parish to to shift you know when you're when you're a parish sponsors someone for the priesthood they don't usually go back to that same parish either right <laughs> So that's why, that's part of the reason. The other part is um, you're ordained to the church. You're not ordained to a parish. And um, the church is in the Diocese of Atlanta, we need deacons throughout our diocese. So our deacons not only leave their home parish, and, and now you have to leave your home parish even during formation. Cause we've just found it's easier to do the, to split early, just like seminarians, but you also have to move every three years. And part of that is because we have so many parishes that need and want deacons and so few deacons that this kind of helps us get, get, a, get, share the wealth as it were. We've had whole convocations that didn't have even one deacon, Mm. and it's difficult. And and it becomes self-fulfilling, right? I I ask priests all the time, "If you had never seen a priest, how would you know you were called to the priesthood?" So we have whole convocations where people are not in their day-to-day lives seeing deacons. So part of that is we want we want to spread that out. also, though, as Jeff was talking about, we're leaders that help lead the church in these, in, in service and in advocacy and in prophecy. So we go into a church and we help. So let me tell you how a church gets a deacon. I'm going I'm to show you how the sausage is made. If, it, if a parish in the Diocese of Atlanta wants a deacon, they have to apply for it. And when they apply for it we ask things like what's your history with deacons how are you prepared to support the deacons because while our deacons are not um paid they're not stipendiary we do expect support through continuing education through mileage through you know whatever they need in order to get their job done at that parish we ask them how many hours do you think your goals are going to take? And we make them outline their goals because the goals need to be diaconal for one thing. So let's say a parish wants to start a prison ministry. That would be part of that application. That also helps us match up the correct deacon for that parish. So, um, I just say all that because we have so many parishes that want deacons. And then this is the way that we help a deacon come in and maybe start that ministry, help to start that ministry, guide the people. Maybe also notice that, well, maybe they wanted to start a food pantry. That's not really where their community's needs are. And so maybe the, the deacon may help the parish um, discern that. But then we turn the work back to the laity. It is your work. It is the parish's work. It is not ours. Just as Jeff was saying, we don't go out there to do it on behalf of. So I hope that answers the question. Jeff, do
1: you have any input? I Well, I had the pleasure and the honor of serving as the Archdeacon in the Diocese of Massachusetts, where we had similar rules. And I actually was a critic of those rules because what I found was that um, the good deacons would get something going and then they get yanked out and things would flounder um, within the congregation without the without leadership. I mean, honestly, it takes you a year to figure out where the washroom is. The second year, you're you're usually the congregation's trying to figure out whether they can really trust this person, and then by the third year, you're kind of going, "Where am I going next?" Um, and that that just keeps you spinning your wheels. Um, in Massachusetts, we tried a an experiment where we said, if the deacon is is truly just being there and not being effective, we'll move them, but if they are have a vital ministry. Uh, started there, that it still needs them, let's leave them in place. Don't break it if it's not broken. Um, It's true, um, uh, most congregations have never even heard of a deacon, uh, but there are other ways around that. Uh, Sharing the pulpit, having the deacon travel with the bishop, uh, and during that pastoral visit, the bishop giving the deacon an opportunity to talk about what the diaconate is. Um, There there are ways. Um, And what happened when we did that was that the size of the diaconate in Massachusetts doubled. So, um, because it's it's hard, particularly for young people who think they might be called to the diaconate. Um, If they have a family, um, we're going to move every three years, or if the kids are in Sunday school, Oh, sorry. You're going to have to leave your friends to go somewhere else. Either that, or mom or dad are going to be at a different parish than than you're at, uh, which really puts a strain on Christmas time. Uh,
0: well, so, uh, I, I want to thank you both for really opening up a world I didn't know a lot about. I learned a lot this evening, so thank you both. Thank um, you. This was really a pleasure. Uh, next week. We have the Reverend Dr. Stephanie Taylor of St. Martin of the Field School and the Reverend David Wagner of Fully Innocent School. So I think that's going to be a great opportunity. It is a surprise topic everyone, we don't know. So tune in and we will find out. I'm told it's going to have something to do with children which makes sense, but it's going to be a surprise. Um, I want to, again, thank you both so much for something that, as I said, I didn't know a lot about, and I'm sure we all learned something tonight. So Carol, if you will lead us out in prayer. One thing I want to do is offer live long and prosper everyone. So have a great week. And thank you very much, Carol.
1: Carol, before you pray, I just want to offer anybody that has any follow-up questions you want to follow up on, feel free to send me an email at gsmith at episcopalchurch.org. And Carol's local, so.
0: And Carol, uh, if if y'all would um, also email us the links of the organizations you were talking about, we'll be glad to post those on our website.
2: Absolutely. Thank you. Well, I thought I would end this with um, actually the prayer that we pray at the ordination of deacons. So let us pray. O God of unchangeable power and eternal light, look favorably on your whole church, that wonderful and sacred mystery by the effectual... Working of your providence, carry out in tranquility the plan of salvation. Let the whole world see and know that things which were cast down are being raised up, and things which had grown old are being made new, and that all things are being brought to their perfection by Him through whom all things were made, your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you all
0: very much. Hope to see you next week.